First of all, I would like to you know, welcome you know, those you know, meditators who have you know, joined our you know, retreat you know, today. And uh, uh, yesterday's you know, Dhamma talk was a welcome talk, and parts of you know, that talk you know, will be um, briefly restated. And you know, then you know, I will elaborate on quite a number of uh, points. Now, what we shall do is we'll take a quick look at the meaning of Dhamma and then some of its aspects. And later on, we shall take a look at the instructions. <clears throat> As mentioned yesterday, Dhamma is uh, the is a Pali term that certain literally it means that which uplifts, that which upholds, guards, protects, and certainly supports that which forms a foundation and upholds. Now. Yesterday it was mentioned that Satna the Dhamma, or there are so many different aspects Satna to the Dhamma, and Satna, can you think of three broad categories of Satna Dhamma that Satna help to protect you? Some very well known categories the Buddha. And Satna, then what else? And the Dharma. <laughs> and then the Sangha. Okay. So, apart from, <laughs> I have nothing to say. Um, yeah, so, apart from yeah, those Satna yeah, three, Buddha, Dhamma, and Satna yeah, Sangha, yeah, then are there any, yeah, is there any group of teachings yeah, that consists of three major items that helps to protect you? Yes, morality, sila, and then? Bhavan, no, no, morality, and then what comes next? Contemplation, and so. Ah, there you go. Samadhi, concentration. So, uh, the second satna aspect, the second satna training, and satna then, the last satna training consists in what? In upanya or wisdom. There you go. And so, it is satna, 
you know, through it, you know, the training in you know, virtue, in you know, sila, that you know, we uh, are you know, protected. We are protected you know, against uh, you know, transgressions, physical as well as verbal you know, transgressions. So you know, by you know, taking and certainly carefully observing a set of you know, eight certain you know, precepts, or for the monastics, you know, the monastic curtain Vows. We you know, then, you know, with this, you know, refine our, or we guard over our you know, physical and verbal you know, deeds and make sure that we do not transgress in one way or another. And so, you know, as a result of this, we will be protected. And so, you know, we will be protected against you know, things such as remorse. Namely, if you were not to. A train in you know, virtue in you know, then you, know, you might and you know, in the absence of you know, mindfulness, you know, then you might so, uh, easily you know, feel tempted to you know, take what is not given, or you, know, you may easily you know, say what is not really you know, true, and you might you know, easily you know, think there's nothing wrong uh, with uh, uh, well drinking, you know, not just one you know, glass of wine, but maybe even ten. And, <laughs> and, so, and so it is you know, by well, not understanding you know, the qualities of you know, virtue that we then easily transgress and you know, then we you know, do things that you know, later on we will regret and you know, so you know, there will be you know, agitation in you know, the mind. We will end up with a bad conscience and then these nagging thoughts will arise. My goodness, how come I was so foolish you know, to have you know, taken, let's say, another, another person's property? Or how come you know, I you know, drank you know, 10 glasses of wine when you know, I might as well, you know, uh, or, or a glass of orange juice would have you know, served me just as well? And certainly, so it is certainly in, you know, by observing a ethical code of conduct that our physical and verbal conduct will be will be purified, will be refined and cultivated, and certainly then we won't end up with a bad certain conscience. Now it is certainly through you know, the training in you know, concentration, samadhi, you know, seka in the Pali language, you know, that's. Uh, on our concentration you know, will suppress, in particular, the five hindrances, and as a result of you know, this, you know, our mind you know, will not be you know, agitated. So you know, we're protected you know, through mind, uh, through concentration against uh, you know, the uh, hindrances and any other you know, form of you know, obsessive you know, mental you know, defilements. Now, the third 
Now, protection comes certainly through the training in wisdom, banya, banya seka, in you know, the Pali scriptural language, and uh, you know, by you know, carefully you know, observing whatever you know, predominant object comes up, and uh, you know, being well focused on the object, and then you know, we will gradually, intuitively understand the nature of the respective object, and as a result of you know, this, you know, the a latent you know, hindrances have no chance you know, to you know, well you know, become activated in the mind in the stream of you know, consciousness, and so, you know, thus again you know, the third you know, the, you know, we are protected in a third way. And Satna, this particular interpretation of Fatna Dhamma is in line with Fatna, the you know, four applications of Fatna, the term as Satna mentioned yesterday, namely uh, as you know, quality, virtue, instruction, text, and Satna phenomena, and here in particular in the sense of instruction. So, um, there are many aspects certainly to you know, the Dhamma, many you know, teaching groups and that certainly are you know, relevant and certainly so, you know, the you know, three, namely virtue, concentration and intuitive you know, wisdom are just you know, one aspect you know, of you know, the Dhamma. Now, We've started certainly yesterday you know, with a rather broad term, namely that of you know, the Dhamma. And certainly now, you know, today, let us go a step further and become you know, somewhat more specific. And the Buddha summed up you know, his certain you know, teachings in particular related to liberation in the following form, namely in the form of a verse. At certain one time, a young Nadewata by the name of Chandana approached the Buddha and then asked him how to cross over the flood. And as mentioned already yesterday, the flood of mental defilements. And certainly to this question, the Buddha then answers one always perfect in virtue or one who follows a certain ethical conduct endowed with intuitive wisdom, well concentrated, one energetic and resolute crosses the flood so hard to cross. So what we have here are five major qualifications that certainly we need to train in if we want to cross over from this certain side or from this shore to the other. Now, of course, certainly the major ones are virtue and concentration and intuitive wisdom, but the Buddha also mentions one who is energetic. 
and certain energetic is certain in you know, the sense of, or the Pani term for this is Aradhatnaviriya, and certain to you know, be understood as follows, as is certainly explained in a short uh, discourse in the Anguttara Nikaya, volume 1, and certainly approximately section you know, 10. And certainly, so there it says, I, the Buddha speaks, I know not of any other single thing of such power to cause the arising of good states not yet arisen or the waning of unwholesome, unskillful states already arisen as energetic effort. In the person who makes energetic effort, aradhatnaviriya, wholesome, skillful states not yet arisen do arise, and unwholesome, unskillful states so far uh, arisen do wane or subside. And this is probably the most simple definition of effort, namely as you know, bringing about wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen and certainly then abandoning unwholesome mental states which have already uh, arisen. So uh, take you know, this you know, rather you know, short you know, definition of Fatnaviriya you know, with you uh, and certainly you know, remember it you know, in the course of you know, this month-long you know, retreat. Now, of course, Satna Viriya also has other meanings, and Satna those we shall explore in the course of the retreat. Now, another quality that is Satna being mentioned, namely as the fifth one, is to be resolute, one who is energetic and resolute. The Pali term for this is pahitata, and certainly it means, well, to be resolute or having a fixed purpose and aim. And so, yesterday we briefly spoke about aims for the meditation practice as expressed by the Buddha himself, such as crossing over in the most simple form and certainly then as certainly gaining clear knowledge and vision. A liberation, clear knowledge and liberation, which we muti, so clear vision and certain liberation or freedom. And certainly then a third aim and certain also benefits of the practice come in the form of the seven benefits as stated in the Satipatthana Sutta itself, namely as you know, the purification of you know, the mind and certainly then you know, the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, you know, then you know, the you know, total destruction of physical pain, of mental distress, 
and sat near the, the entering of foot near the right path and finally near the attainment of foot near Nibbana. Now, with this certain we've covered energy, being energetic and certain resolute. So two qualities certain that are necessary to cross certain the flood, certain so hard, certain to cross. Now, our verse from the Chandanatna Sutta also says that we need to be endowed with virtue. All, one always perfect certainly in virtue, sabbata sila sampano in the Pali scriptural language. Now, when it comes to virtue and virtuous certain conduct, then the question might arise, well, how do I determine whether an action plan is going to be virtuous or not? And the Buddha has given us a very simple uh, yardstick for this, a very simple uh, guideline. And this is certainly expressed in as part of Dhammapada verse 129, where it says, all are afraid of the stick, all fear death. Putting oneself in another's place, one should not beat or kill others. Now, the essential line is putting oneself in another's place. To put oneself in another, you know, put oneself in another person's shoes. So before you actually do something, or you know, before you know, out of you know, let's say bout of rage, before you hit another person or knock down another person, briefly reflect whether you would like to be punched like this or not. Is there anyone among you who likes to be punched into the face and sent to the ground? <laughs> Obviously not. And so, and so, since we ourselves certainly would not like to be punched, severely punched, well, likewise, others certainly wouldn't, will not like it either. And certainly thus, we refrain from acting on such an intention. And this certain principle in Pali known as Atanam Upamam Katawa, now, this you can apply to any situation, especially when you're not quite sure uh, is what I'm planning to do or say, and is it covered by you know, the five, foot, you know, five precepts, eight certain precepts, or not. Now, taking oneself as a yardstick would be one way to go, and so as our teacher in Burma likes, or on many occasions, and has pointed out, to observe or to live one's life in a virtuous manner has a lot to do 
partner with loving kindness and metta in Pali and also you know, compassion, karuna. And so you know, before we you know, do anything, you know, then you know, we you know, reflect, well, I'm wishing for you know, the welfare and happiness of uh, you know, you know, this other person and do I really want to cause harm to him or her? And so, you know, then also along you know, the line of karuna, compassion, if you think of the consequences of some uh, action that would certainly bring harm to another, like you know, our famous punch into you know, the face, then naturally you will not, from a compassion point of view, you don't want others to experience suffering or you even want to relieve their suffering. And hence you have two strong mental factors to pull you away from unvirtuous conduct. Now, the texts, especially the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, gives two proximate causes for the arising of virtue. And the first one is Satna Hiri, namely moral shame. And Satna, the second one is Otapa, namely moral fear of wrongdoing. Now, when we look at uh, the uh, definition of uh, virtue, uh, then uh, we find an interesting uh, word. Namely, it says uh, its characteristic is composing. Now, if you hear this, you might not understand what is meant. And the Visuddhimagga explains composing uh, then in two different uh, ways, namely as coordinating. Now, coordinating our physical and verbal conduct with virtuousness, with, um, no, and with ethics. And as a result of this, we then refrain from any kind of conduct that would be not consistent or inconsistent with virtuousness. And certainly the second explanation for it composing is certainly given as upholding, namely serving as a foundation for profitable states. Now, there is a strong connection between virtue, sila, and certain concentration. And the connection happens in the following way, namely, when you do carefully observe an ethical code of conduct, you will not end up with remorse, with an agitated state of mind. Oh, why did I do this? And now I'm sitting here and have to experience all these nagging thoughts. And as a result of this agitation, the mind will be distracted. And then will it be easy for concentration to arise in your mind or not? Uh, not easy. And so if you want to make life 
easier for yourself. Now then really you know, take Kutnasila seriously and you know, just know that it is truly a foundation for you know, the training in you know, concentration and you know, then also for you know, the training in you know, wisdom. And not without certain reason has certain the Buddha mentioned both or, or all these certain three terms, sila, samadhi, and certain panyan, saying that certain sila is certain the foundation for concentration and certain wisdom. Now, the function of virtue is certainly given in a twofold manner, and it's certainly actually quite straightforward and certainly obvious. Namely, we observe an ethical code of conduct to stop misconduct. So any kind of physical or verbal misconduct. And so on observing virtues, certain conduct, certain observing the eight precepts, will this certain really help to stop the third form of misconduct, namely mental misconduct? Will it or will it not? Ultimately, uh, not. Not in, maybe indirectly, but certainly not necessarily directly. And it's certain, so the precepts that we are observing help us with refinement and cultivation of our, or cultivation of our physical and verbal conduct, but not necessarily the mental misconduct. Now, the second function of virtue is certainly given as achievement in the sense of the quality of blamelessness in virtuous men and certain women. And so we gain this certain quality of blamelessness. And the manifestation of virtue is, uh, um, as certainly can be expected, certain purity, uh, bodily purity, verbal purity, and certainly indirectly also mental purity. If we say that certain being very aware of virtuous conduct will ultimately shape the mind. Now, the Buddha says that certainly the um, aim as well as certainly uh, the uh, major uh, benefit of uh, uh, training in virtue comes in the form of non-remorse. Now, there are of course, other you know, many other benefits certainly to ethical you know, conduct, and such as if we you know, observe a certain ethical conduct, it will you know, lead or it will create mutual you know, trust, and so, uh, it you know, will also open you know, doors, and so, you know, we you know, then you know, will not have to be uh, afraid of uh, others. Now, 
here, uh, in in a place like uh, you know, the forest you know, refuge you know, that is surrounded by lots of nature, the caterpillars and the ants and the flies and the mosquitoes and all those many bugs will say no, thank you to all of you for not stepping on them and not swatting near them. So, in other words, Nisila leads to a respect for life. And there are some really solid applications here. And it is well known that in Asian countries where Buddhism is being practiced, monasteries with the surrounding area are oftentimes sanctuaries for wildlife. And this and the bird your birds and the other forms of birds and deers and snakes, etc. They know instinctively that they are in a a safe place, and suddenly, thus suddenly, they come and suddenly settle. And suddenly, for those of you who might suddenly not know, that IMS suddenly has suddenly clear policies about not or not allowing hunting on their grounds. So that's certainly a wonderful contribution. Now. Maybe this much on you know, the precepts you know, will you know, be enough. Let me briefly mention a few words on you know, concentration. So if we're well established in you know, virtue, it will be so much easier you know, for concentration to arise in the mind. And that if we then also you know, practice you know, being mindful of whatever predominant object comes up from moment to moment, then, um, you know, then concentration you know, can easily arise. And what happens is you know, that you know, whenever our mind falls squarely on a you know, predominant object of observation, then you know, for the time that the mind is focused on this object, you know, the moments of concentration will be there. Then comes the next you know, predominant object, and certain if we you know, then if the mind again you know, squarely falls on it, you know, stays you know, on it you know, for you know, a few more you know, moments, then again the concentration will be there. So in other words, a series of moments of concentration will arise based on different objects. And this kind of concentration is known as what? Kamika. Samadhi, there you go, momentary concentration. And it's not to be understood as just one single moment of concentration, but rather a series of moments of concentration based on observing different objects. Now, with the training in 
concentration, as mentioned earlier on, we will gain protection, namely in particular against the arising of obsessive defilements. So mental defilements that take place in the mind that, however, are not strong enough to actually lead to a physical or verbal transgression. And certain so obsessive certain defilements may occur in the form of uh, a thought wanting to uh, maybe verbally abuse another person or uh, wanting to lash out certain physically lash out at certain another person or uh, wanting to take another person's property and so on and so forth. So. In the presence of Fertner concentration, these obsessive Fertner mental defilements will be suppressed. And certainly this is good, but uh, not good enough. And unfortunately, you know, there is still another category of Fertner mental defilements, or grade of Fertner mental defilements, and you know, those are known as the you know, latent or dormant Fertner defilements, Anusia Kilesa, in the Pali scripture language, and you know, these you know, we have to overcome you know, through the training in intuitive wisdom. And so, by carefully observing whatever predominant object arises, you know, wisdom is likely to arise. So we know the nature of the respective object. And certainly then, when wisdom is present, you know, will mental defilements have a chance to arise at that very point? Not. So, the wisdom, in the presence of wisdom, ignorance cannot certainly be there, and it goes certainly without saying that other mental defilements too will not have a chance certainly to arise. However, as soon as our wisdom disappears because, let's say, we're not mindful anymore or we're not putting in effort certainly anymore, then ignorance and the whole lot of unwholesome mental states will be ready to jump up in your stream of consciousness. Now, the practice that we are doing here is a form of meditation that is strongly geared um, or naturally uh, is geared you know, towards certainly the arising of you know, mindfulness, the arising of concentration, and in particular of intuitive you know, wisdom. And for you know, this you know, to happen, you know, we need to be you know, very clear about you know, the instructions. So. What will follow from now onwards is an explanation of how to do the sitting meditation, how to do the walking meditation, and then also how to be mindful during general activities, and then a few words about the interview and also balanced practice. Now, there are different ways to sit in terms of posture. Uh, 
And certainly the Satipatthana Sutta itself recommends what? To sit cross-legged and can every one of you do this? Uh, not necessarily. Now, if we can sit in a cross-legged manner, it's fine. Please go ahead. However, our bodies may not, not our special leg muscles may not be all that flexible. And so if this doesn't work, then consider sitting in, let's say, half lotus, or should this posture also prove to be too difficult, then you might want to choose the so-called Burmese posture, placing one leg in front of the other without the legs intertwining. Now, when choosing a posture for our sitting meditation, it's important that we choose a posture that we can easily maintain for a longer period of time without developing postural pains. So what's the use of sitting in full lotus if af after only five minutes um, already we end up uh, with tremendous pain in uh, the thighs and maybe also in uh, the back? Now, should the Burmese posture not be suitable for it, you either then you could consider, as some of you are doing already, sitting on a bench, which is fine, and this will very much help you to maintain, to keep your back very upright. And for some, even this might not work. And as age well increases, then gradually we need more comfort. And thus, if you have some, let's say, chronic back condition, you've had maybe also some accident, maybe even some injury, and it's just impossible for you to sit on the floor, then do feel free to sit on a chair, but please make sure that you do not lean against the backrest. And the reason for this is a certain amount of physical effort, namely the effort to keep the body upright, is necessary also, or is necessary to keep the mind from falling asleep. So if we sit, and you can uh, test this, mm, uh, let's say in the dining hall, uh, if you sit on a very uh, comfortable uh, sofa and you lean uh, against its back, uh, then uh, uh, probably within uh, half an hour or so, uh, your mind uh, will be less alert uh, than it was, uh, than it originally uh, was. And so uh, you might even uh, doze off. <coughs> Or you know, what you could certainly consider is you know, doing one sitting on a chair and certainly then you know, the next certainly sitting on you know, the cushion. Also, one you know, point to keep in mind for those who are quite comfortable sitting on the cushion, especially for newcomers, 
take one one safu or even two, place those under your buttocks. This will raise the buttocks off the ground and thus you'll end up with less muscular tension in the thighs and it will be so much easier to sit. Then after a couple of days of practice or a few weeks of practice, you find your body is already much more or has become more flexible and then you might no longer need two cushions and you can settle for one cushion and later on that cushion too might go. Now, um, when it comes to our you know, the posture of our hands, then we could place well the hands on the knees, or we could place the hands between just in between the two knees, or we could place one hand on top of the other, and then with just just like this. Now. The mudra, in other words, the position of our hands in the end doesn't matter all that much. What really counts is that we're mindful from moment to moment, then concentration develops, and then intuitive wisdom will arise quite naturally. Now, when we sit, we do not want to sit like this. <laughs> we don't want to sit with a slouched back, but rather with an upright posture. And ideally, the back should be at an angle of 90 degrees to the ground you're sitting on. And this will help to prevent several things. Namely, it will keep the drowsiness away. It will ensure that your respiration system will work properly. It will also make sure that the posture will not interfere with your digestion. And then finally, it will further ensure that no conflict with your urinary system. Now, when we sit in meditation with an upright back, then we, for the most part, keep our eyes closed. However, should we be overcome by sloth and strong sloth and torpor, then we could open the eyes and then let light penetrate, and this might help to dispel the sleepiness. Now, the Mahasi instructions for the meditation is, or are, or meditation instruction for you know, the breathing is you know, to just uh, let it occur naturally. At times, your breathing may be somewhat faster. In this case, just observe it as it is. And at other times, the breathing might slow down, become more shallow, more refined, in which case, just observe it as it 
is and try not to interfere with your breathing. So if it's certainly rather you know, slow and certainly shallow, then try not to speed it up. And certainly when it's certainly rather you know, you know, fast, then intentionally don't try to you know, slow it down. Just observe it you know, the way it is. And you will see in the course of time that your rising and falling movement of the abdomen will undergo many, many, many changes. It will manifest in so many different ways and for you to find out all these details. Now, the anchor in our sitting practice is indeed the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. And in this connection, when you're breathing in, then quite naturally the abdomen will expand. And then you try to briefly label this as rising and then you observe it and you try to know its nature. Now, When we observe an object like you know, the rising movement or you know, falling movement of the abdomen or any other you know, predominant object, you know, then three aspects are worth you know, keeping in mind. And you know, those are you know, the occurrence of the respective object as number one, number two, you know, the labeling plus you know, the observation of the object, and at number three, knowing the nature of you know, the object of observation. Now, when it comes to you know, the occurrence of an object, is there anything special that you need to do? Not at all. It doesn't certainly require any effort from your side. Object, there will be plenty of objects occurring you now all by themselves. Now, as for the second aspect, uh, you know, which consists of two parts, namely uh, the labeling and certain uh, observation, here your input is required. And so an object has occurred, like our rising movement of the abdomen, and certain, uh, now uh, you want to label it as rise or rising. And then, and this is, please, do understand it correctly. The labeling is not mindfulness yet. This is just the mental factor of perception or recognition. And then the next item is the observation itself. And this is the mindfulness part. So when an object like the rising movement of the abdomen takes place, then we want to observe it as best as we can from its very beginning through its middle until its very end. And then we want to know its nature, which is the third aspect. And so, as expressed already yesterday, to know the nature of an object means to know it in terms of what? Sensations, such as, in the case of the rising movement, maybe it's expansion or tension or stiffness or tightness, or can you think of other qualities? Hot and cold, there you go, temperature element, and motion, movement, anything else? 
supporting, yes. Still some more? Whether painful or not, yes, certainly, there you go. So uh, there's quite a variety of uh, aspects that certainly we can pay attention to in our in the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and also with regard to uh, any other predominant object. And so day after, to, most likely day after tomorrow, I will give a demo talk which will explain to you in great detail the various observational as well as descriptive categories that could be very relevant and very helpful for you to know. The talk will give you some some ideas of what or how you could observe an object, and that will obviously will then help your practice. Now, so the same set of three aspects, namely occurrence of an object, labeling plus observation, and knowing its nature, these are three aspects you can transpose to any predominant object certainly that occurs uh, in the body or in the mind. So let's say a pain arises and certainly so it occurs all by itself, there's nothing you have to do and certainly then you just, uh, then you label it as pain and certainly then carefully observe, you know, observe it and certainly then you, know, you try to know its nature. And so knowing its nature in this case might mean to know whether it is a stabbing pain or stinging pain or a burning pain or maybe a knife cutting pain and so on and so forth. And those certain three aspects of occurrence, labeling, plus observation, and knowing the nature are, as I will explain later on, also relevant for the interview process. Now, once we have observed the rising and falling for a while, sooner or later, some other object might suddenly become predominant. In this case, we then have the freedom to let go of the rising and of the observation of the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and suddenly then we focus our attention onto the next object, and suddenly then we label it, we observe it, and we try to know its certain nature. Now, let us take uh, as an example uh, hardness uh, that arises in the buttock, uh, because we've sat already quite uh, long. So the hardness uh, is there, and suddenly then we remember to label it as hardness or simply as hard, and suddenly then we carefully observe it for for the entire its entire duration, and suddenly then we also try to know its nature. So what is this hardness doing? And is it one static? 
permanent you know, type of hardness or that is it you know, a hardness that while we're observing it is suddenly let's say intensifying getting you know, stronger and suddenly then after a while it's getting weaker and suddenly then you know, the hardness you know, you know, gets complemented by you know, let's say a burning you know, sensation and suddenly then you know, the hardness suddenly loses you know, its strength and suddenly the burning you know, gets more you know, predominant etc etc so uh, you will you know, very soon see you know, that an object like hardness um, will undergo many you know, changes over time so as a meditator trying to be with you know, the flow be you know, with what is happening and certainly then you know, observe as best as you can try to know as best as you can and also relate your experiences you know, during you know, the interview now yesterday the continuity of mindfulness was just briefly you know, mentioned and so, so allow me to expand on you know, this to you know, some extent. Continuity of mindfulness is probably the vital you know, factor, the most you know, vital you know, factor or crucial you know, factor you know, for you know, a good development in our meditation practice. So we've come here not to stagnate in our meditation, but we've come here you know, to you know, well explore you know, ever new you know, terrain. And continuity of mindfulness ensures that the mind will be kept or will be protected. Now, if our mindfulness is not really continuous, then, as mentioned earlier on, unwholesome mental states have a chance, an easy chance, to arise in the stream of consciousness. Now, our mindful, our mindfulness at first will not be all that continuous. How can it be? And it takes a lot of practice to have a mindfulness that could be, you know, or that would really qualify as you know, continuous mindfulness. And Later on in the practice, during you know, the higher insight knowledges, when things certain have become quite certainly refined, at that point you know, we you know, may you know, then feel or get the you know, the feeling that the mindfulness is pretty you know, continuous from moment to moment to moment. Now, please consider you know, this. At first we may think that one moment of mindfulness in a minute is quite enough. After a while, you know, we realize you know, that you know, there are 59 seconds you know, during which you know, mindfulness is absent. And then we get the point, maybe it's not all that continuous. And so, you know, then we make a big effort to be even more you know, mindful. And so to narrow down our discontinuity of you know, mindfulness, and hence you know, we're mindful you know, once every second. However, 
here comes another surprise. As our mindfulness gets better and better, you know, we realize, oh, there are these many microseconds between or within one second. And so, you know, we realize we are not really you know, mindful every microsecond. So you have to see the whole thing as a gradual process of gradually you know, becoming more and more or of our mindfulness becoming more and more and more uh, continuous. So we have to work at it. It's not something that will uh, arise naturally. And if your mindfulness at first is not all that continuous, please you know, be gentle with yourself and you know, don't you know, you know, blame yourself, you know, but rather you know, with understanding, just know if I just keep at it, then gradually it will become more and more you know, continuous. Now, Apart from you know, the continuity of you know, mindfulness, we also need other you know, mental factors that you know, need to you know, complement you know, our practice and, or you know, complement the you know, mindfulness. And those are the, you know, what the Venerasadu Pandita explains as aiming, vitaka and pani. And so, thus, you try to aim your observing mind and uh, your observing mind you know, towards the center of the most uh, predominant object. So you do not want to aim it at uh, maybe a point uh, that is mm, falling short of uh, the object, nor do you want to aim at a point you know, that uh, would overshoot uh, the object. So in those certain cases, you would not really hit the center of the object. Now, this aiming of the mind needs to be accompanied by effort, viriya in the Pani scriptural language. And here, effort takes on a very particular quality, namely that of sending or propelling the observing mind towards your predominant object. So let's say, if the object is right here and our observing mind is here, well, somewhere or other, you need to get it to go towards your object. And so uh, effort is uh, taking uh, care of uh, this aspect. Now, when uh, those two mental factors are present, the aiming and uh, the effort, uh, then uh, the mind, uh, the observing mind, uh, will likely be in close touch with the object. It will be rubbing uh, the object. So rubbing, uh, then, which are in the Pali scriptural language, is Njanic factor, uh, will also uh, be present. And so in the presence of those certain three mental qualities, mindfulness can easily arise. And then if your aiming is quite continuous, your effort is also continuous, etc., then your mindfulness is likely also to be continuous from moment to moment. Now, during past retreats, on occasion, meditators have expressed a certain difficulty around the labeling. And thus, I will say a few words about this, how to label. 
So when you observe you know, the rising movement of the abdomen, and then at the very beginning of the rising movement, it's quite enough if you just briefly label as rise or rising. And then you know, there's no need to label again you know, as rising, 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 you know, etc. Because if you were to do like this, then would you still have time to actually you know, observe and know the nature of the object? Not. Your mind will be busy you know, labeling. <laughs> and so, so just one you know, short you know, label at the beginning of you know, the object will be uh, quite you know, sufficient. Now, if we have an object like a pain that will last for a longer period of time, uh, then you know, the instruction you know, would be, well, the pain arises, you focus your attention on it, and then you label it as pain, and then you observe it, you try to know its nature. Again, after a couple of seconds, you, know, you label it one more time as pain, and so, you know, then again, you, know, you observe it, and you try to know its nature. And so, you know, you know, several times like this, uh, one after another. And so, and so, you want to space the labeling in such a way that you have enough time you know, to actually you know, observe you know, the object and you know, to know uh, its nature. Now, in terms of you know, the words that we use for you know, the labeling, try to you know, use simple words, don't go for any you know, sophisticated words. And if on occasion, let's say some new sensation has arisen and you don't quite know how to label it, just go for you know, the most generic term that comes to your mind and that will be you know, fine. And we're here not to become experts in finding the right labels, but we're here primarily to carefully observe whatever predominant object comes up and to know its respective nature. Now, if on occasion you miss to label some object, then do you need to feel guilty about this? Oh, once again. <laughs> There is no need for this. And so it does happen. Sometimes there are quite a number of objects occurring in a quick succession. And so if you miss the label, then just let it be and just focus on a careful observation and knowing the nature of the respective object. Now, This much with regard to the labeling, maybe a few more words about pains. And certainly yesterday I didn't say too, too much. Um, now, when you work with a pain, the attitude that we bring toward, or that we have towards it matters a great deal. And certain we can view, as m most of us will probably do, you know, we can view pain as, uh, uh, as a friend or as an enemy. And so you know, mostly we see it as an Most people at the beginning see it as an enemy. And so you know, they want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. And uh, that's not uh, the way uh, to go. And indeed, 
what works much better is to see an, a pain as a friend because in the long run it helps us to develop concentration and it will also help us you know, to you know, develop you know, intuitive you know, wisdom. Now, when a pain, uh, and so maybe you know, there's still one more you know, remark here, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhivams of Phutna Burma, on many occasions, in the connection with pains, has suddenly stated very correctly that more important than getting rid of a pain is to know its nature. And when you truly know the nature of an object like a pain, then sooner or later it will break up and suddenly then disappear. Now, when we you know, work you know, with a pain, you know, then you know, we try to welcome it, and suddenly you know, we accept it, and we just observe it for you know, what it is with an with a gentle you know, and you know, with a gentle and allowing attitude, and we try to mm, we try to then be patient with the pain, even if the pain gets somewhat uncomfortable, never mind, we'll observe it just a little bit longer, and again a little bit longer. And we change our sitting posture only if a pain becomes excruciating. Now, sure enough, there's no need you know, to you know, prove yourself, uh, you, know, you know, what a great uh, person you are, um, you know, by you know, you know, well trying to accomplish you know, new records of uh, dealing with the pain, like you know, two hours uh, or three hours of uh, a marathon sitting, you know, working with a pain. So this is not uh, necessary. So do change uh, your posture, you know, but. You know, do so slowly and uh, mindfully. Now, when we observe you know, a pain, you know, we you know, want to know its quality, so what kind of pain it is. We also you know, want to know how is this pain doing in terms of intensity. So is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it at times disappearing and suddenly then reappearing? And suddenly then how is this pain you know, behaving in terms of uh, location? Is it arising in one spot and suddenly then disappearing in the same spot? Or is it arising in one spot and spreading out over a larger you know, area and then you know, maybe eventually you know, disappearing? And then how is the pain you know, doing in terms of time? You know, so, is it a long-lasting pain, which maybe lasts for the entire session, or is it a more short-lived pain, which lasts for a couple of minutes, or a very short pain, which lasts for just a few seconds? And so here again, what matters is that we know the development with regard to the object. 
And so at first, pain arises and it seems like rather solid, rather compact, static in nature. But later on, we will see it will undergo many changes and we need to know those changes and also relate them. Now, a few words about Satna, the walking meditation. The Buddha has spoken of Satna, walking meditation, and Satna, there's even a word Satna, for this, Satna Chankama, and um, in the Pali scriptural language. And the walking meditation is just as important as Satna, the sitting meditation. Sometimes you know, meditators you know, give much preference to you know, the sitting meditation and they kind of dismiss the walking meditation as uh, you know, uh, having a secondary uh, or of, you know, being a, you know, a secondary importance. And that's not you know, the case at all. Now, early on, the continuity of mindfulness was stressed you know, quite a bit. And it is out of this principle that the mindfulness in walking meditation is so important. So if we sit for one hour and we manage to develop our practice really nicely, our mindfulness comes along nicely, our concentration, our intuitive wisdom, and then the bell sounds and then we jump up and then we rush out of the hall and then aimlessly we walk around and maybe even talk, then what will happen to our mindfulness? What will happen to our concentration and intuitive wisdom? These are likely to be negatively affected. And so the work or the the momentum that we've achieved during our sitting meditation, this at least we want to maintain throughout our you know, walking meditation. If not, uh, you know, we, uh, if not, uh, you know, we want to uh, even uh, improve it further. And um, a sitting, a walking meditation done properly will then be supportive for the next sitting. So sitting and walking meditation, they complement each other. Now, during the first few days of a retreat, it's important to spend an, roughly an equal amount of time on the sitting meditation and walking meditation. So if we sit for one hour, then it's good to walk for one hour. And later on, as our practice deepens, then we might feel an urge to sit longer, then that's fine. And then we do a little bit less walking. Now, when we do the walking meditation, and then you know, we you know, want to choose a path 
Now that is maybe five, ten meters long, so we don't need a very long distance for this. And then, without trying to get to any particular destination, we simply mindfully walk, mindfully and slowly walk up and down. And so the main emphasis is on being mindful of what happens during the walking meditation and also to know the nature of the respective object. Now, the Venerable Mahasi side of Burma has described three forms of walking meditation. The first one being when the right leg moves, we label this as right step. And then when the left leg moves, we label this as left step. And so right step, left step. And so we focus our attention on the most predominant object occurring in the leg. Wherever it might be, it could be in the thigh, could be in the knee, could be in the foot itself. Now, this first form of walking meditation we do relatively slowly, slower than ordinary walking meditation. And, and then, during the second, third of our walking meditation, we slow down the speed. We divide one step into two parts, namely the lifting process and the lowering and placing of the foot. And so at the very beginning of the lifting process, we just briefly uh, label as lifting, and then carefully we observe the entire lifting process from start to finish. And we try to know uh, the nature of this lifting process. Then we do exactly the same thing for the lowering and placing of the foot. So we label it, we observe it, we try to know its nature. Now, when you do this form of the second form of walking meditation, there is no need to lift the foot awfully high above the ground. Sometimes this happens. So just lift it high enough so that you can then later on place your foot on the ground. Another point is when you do the second form of walking meditation, then do you want to take really long steps? Like you want to get to the end of the path real quickly. So there's no need for this. And rather, um, try to take short steps. So let's say this is one foot here. So you place this foot or you lift it and then you place it just in front of the other foot. And this has the advantage that while you're placing this right foot on the ground, the left foot is not yet coming off the ground. And thus, your attention can be with one foot at a time and not with two. Otherwise, if you take long steps, then as you're placing this foot on the ground, the other one will already come off the ground and then your attention will go back and forth or shuttle back and forth between the two feet and this will not help your concentration at all. So try to remember to take short steps. And so the 
potential field you know, for the you know, field of objects to be you know, observed is in the second form of walking meditation is no longer the entire leg but rather you know, just you know, the area of you know, ranging from you know, the ankle all the way to you know, the tip of foot, you know, the toes. And the reason for this is as gradually we narrow down our field of objects to be observed, and thus we can then see more details. Now, during the third, during the third or last third of our walking meditation, so the last 20 minutes, we slow down our walking even further, and suddenly we then divide one step into three parts, namely the lifting process, the gliding movement, and the lowering and placing of the foot. And it's basically the same thing as explained earlier on during for, for the second form of walking meditation. The only difference is the gliding part in between. So at the beginning of the gliding process, we just briefly label this as gliding and suddenly then we observe it carefully from start to finish and we try to know its sudden nature. Now, for this third form of walking meditation, again, we limit our field of potential objects to be observed to the foot only. And suddenly then this suddenly will help with the close suddenly observation. Now when you do your walking meditation, really take your time to do it super, super slowly. And if you do it this way, I can guarantee you a microcosm of subtle experiences will arise or you will have access to it. If you do things in a rather rapid manner, you're bound to miss so many details. Now, when we do the walking meditation, we try to do so with an upright certain posture. There is no need to look at our feet. Are they walking properly or not? Are they still there or not? And so, you know, just focus your attention at a point maybe three to four meters ahead of you. And so, you know, this will ensure that you don't end up with a stiff foot neck which may easily happen if you spend days and days uh, looking, you're doing your walking meditation and then looking at uh, your feet. Now, when you, also in connection with the posture, when we do the walking meditation, we want our uh, hands and arms not to you know, sway around in an uncontrolled manner, but rather we want to keep them either in front of the body or behind the body. And so there's restraint, or the Buddha speaks of restraint of the senses. One of the senses is the body itself. And so restraining our hands and arms is part of this. And 
among you know, beginning meditators, it frequently happens you know, that they walk, you know, they do their walking meditation, yes, but you know, the you know, hands and arms are not really uh, under you know, control. So there's a large uh, area you know, that uh, uh, is not really mm, you know, taken care of. And so, uh, the walking meditation can be just as powerful and liberating as uh, the sitting meditation. There have been meditators who gained the Dhamma while doing the walking meditation. Now, a few words about the about mindfulness in you know, general activities, an important part. And uh, this mindfulness you know, in you know, general activities also is certainly uh, highly stressed because we want to, you know, to maintain the continuity of mindfulness throughout uh, the day. Now, oftentimes certain uh, meditators uh, have not much certain uh, respect for um, you know minor activities you know, such as opening a door or closing a door or you know, you know put, taking off one's certain uh, shoes or you know, slipping back into you know, one's shoes or you know, maybe taking a shower etc etc people think why should i be mindful at least uh, you know, during these general activities you know, let my mind uh, uh, have a short vacation so that's certainly not certainly the way to go now any activity apart from formal sitting and walking meditation and of course being asleep during the night comes under general activities and let me just briefly state a few things about mindfulness while eating or in, in the being in the dining hall. So when we line up, then we want to be mindful of fitness standing. Then when we help, when we're in front of the buffet and we take food, we want to do this mindfully. So when we scoop some food with a ladle, then we want to label this as certain scooping. And then when we place the food on our plate, we label this as placing. We carefully observe it. We try to know it's nature and so and then uh, once we have all you know, the food you know, then mindfully we walk over you know, to one of you know, the tables and you know, then mindfully you know, we place you know, the you know, plate you know, with you know, food and the cup on the table and then mindfully we move the chair backwards mindfully we sit down and then mindfully we go through this entire process of eating and so this involves well picking up maybe a spoon so then we label this as picking up and we want to know the different sensations that are involved in holding the spoon and then when we you know, scoop the food, it's the same thing uh, as Satna early on. When we bring you know, the spoon you know, with the food towards the mouth, we label this as bringing, and you know, then you know, we try to know the predominant sensations either uh, in the hand itself 
or in the fingers or maybe in the arm, as the case may be. And then you know, opening the mouth so we could label this and you know, then placing you know, the food uh, into the mouth. And so, you know, then uh, you know, when chewing, we label this as chewing, we observe it, we try to know its nature and so, you know, eventually then comes so, you know, the swallowing. So, you know, try to you know, observe or, or you know, apply your mindfulness you know, also you know, fully to you know, the entire process of you know, eating. Now, um, eating is a rather complex you know, affair, and if you cannot you know, label and observe you know, everything, never mind, that's fine. You know, if you manage to you know, focus your attention on you know, the main aspects you know, while um, you know, eating, this is quite you know, enough. And also keep in mind that you know, we have certain time you know, limits to observe here, you know, so you want to finish you know, within, you know, let's say, 45 minutes. Now, just a few, you know, and as I mentioned already you know, yesterday, in mindfulness of general activities, you know, we want to perform these activities again as slowly as possible and also with the common restraint of you know, the senses. Now, a few words about you know, the uh, interview process. You know, we you know, want to you know, stick to you know, the um, principles used in modern you know, sciences, you know, namely accuracy, brevity, and brevity and certain you know, precision. And so, you know, then, mm, when we give a report, you know, we try to you know, do so in a chronological you know, manner. So, you know, stating, starting with a you know, description of what the rising and falling movement of the abdomen was like, and so, you know, then taking it so, you know, from you know, there, and, so, and then. We try to you know, express certain things according you know, to you know, the aspects of occurrence of the object, its labeling or the labeling used, and certainly then the observation of the object and knowing its certain nature. And then, you know, when you, you know, give your you know, report, you're know, trying to do so in simple you know, language. It is not necessary you know, to you know, use complicated certain you know, Pali terms, and you know, then you know, also you, know, you, you know, don't want to evaluate you know, your own practice. And certainly, this is what a teacher is certainly for. And certainly, since you know, at at least certainly in the beginning, it's quite difficult to you know, really you know, understand what is certainly happening. And then, you know, when you give your report, you know, trying to you know, give a description of you know. Uh, a comprehensive description of uh, your sitting meditation and then you know, followed you know, of uh, your best uh, walking meditation. Now, best sitting, best uh, walking session is to be understood in the sense any sitting or walking session that best reflects uh, your practice. And even if you've had a day of difficulties, you know, then you know, if uh, this is the case, okay, 
complicated you know, than you, know, you, you choose that sitting and that walking session that best reflects uh, you know, the latest development uh, within your last 24-hour you know, period. And don't expect your practice to be always you know, you know, smooth sailing. It will not be. Difficulties are not you know, likely you know, to arise once uh, in a while. Then, um, let me see. If you like to write down your experiences uh, after a sitting, please do so, uh, especially if you don't have a perfect certain memory. And certainly since we have group sittings here and so, um, the hall, well, one can easily hear what's happening here in the hall, I suggest maybe that you write down your experiences outside of the hall. And by all means, don't write down your experiences you know, during a sitting, you know, oh, you know, turning over pages and suddenly clicking with your ball pen. You know, this certainly might uh, create quite uh, some uh, annoyance for some of your you know, fellow you know, Meditator. So it's not to, not necessary to test their patience at, again and again. And, so, and then what else? Now, our teacher from Burma, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita, Bhivamsa, makes or gives a very a good reason for you know, the interviews. He says that you know, they have you know, they help a meditator you know, to gain you know, or to receive some clarification about you know, the practice, and you know, so a teacher you know, may you know, explain to you why you know, certain things are happening, or a teacher you know, might you know, explain to you maybe you know, don't you know don't observe in this way, but maybe better in a, in a different way. And so, you know, then you know, there's so many other things that happen during you know, during an interview, and um, during this retreat we will have you know, slightly more interviews than you know, some of the old yogis uh, now are you know, used here or used to it you know, here. And the reason is simply you know, that. Um, with more you know, frequent interviews, you know, there will be, from a meditator's point of view, you know, a stronger uh, input, a stronger you know, willingness to you know, work hard and to observe carefully what's happening because you know, okay, you know, the next interview is just around the corner. It's going to be you know, tomorrow or at the latest, the you know, day after you know, tomorrow. And so, it will galvanize Satna your practice. And the human mind is such that it is afflicted by many weaknesses. And one of them is known as as laziness. There you go. And if you have interviews spaced far apart, and something like just one interview a week, then you've had your interview, and then the mind goes, okay, now, <laughs> now I can practice as I like, and then you're basically already on holiday mode. <laughs> and so, 
But since time is certainly precious, we really want to make the best use of our opportunity here. Now, this basically covers the main points for the interview process. During the beginning days of the retreat, meditators commonly experience certain difficulties, such as wandering mind, such as sleepiness, such as pains and aches, and based on those difficulties with the schedule, and based on these, a certain discouragement might arise. So just know you are not the only one who is facing these difficulties. Your neighbor to your right or to your left may have similar difficulties and just be patient, just keep going. And so after a few days of practice, usually the practice will turn around, it will get somewhat easier and more rewarding, and then you'll be so happy to still be here. Now, in terms of balanced practice, let me give you some major points to keep in mind for the time that we will spend here together. Now, some retreatants do not drink enough liquids and get dehydrated. Please ensure that your daily intake of liquids is above two liters a day during the cold season, and if it gets warmer, then even more than two liters a day. Then, secondly, some retreatants, you know, eat very little food or you know, get into a different pattern, namely they eat less and less and less or eventually you know, they stop eating altogether. Now, intensive apostle meditation you know, requires that a retreatant eat a moderate amount of food you know, to provide you know, the body with nourishment, nutrition and strength, and only then you know, will you be able you know, to do you know, the practice. Now, again, you know, some you know, meditators allow themselves to be constipated for three or more days, and so, you know, this is rather unpleasant. And so please tackle constipation soon by taking natural laxatives or by doing certain exercises that might induce a bowel movement. Now, around sleep, there are certain things to keep in mind. Namely, we do not want to deliberately deprive ourselves of sleep by deciding, let's say at 6 p.m. or so, that now I will sit through the entire night in cross-legged certain position and I will get up from this seat only tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And this will not be too helpful. 
And there are points in your you know, practice you know, when one does get by you know, with you know, naturally you know, with less sleep. You know, there are some you know, times also, you know, or, or you know, some meditators you know, on occasion. Uh, when you know, the practice permits, mm, manage to you know, practice through the night, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. This is okay. But if your practice is not at that point, please don't force it. So you know, the, the emphasis is really on not overdoing it, not to you know, go into any kind of you know, extreme. And so do make sure that you get enough Fertner rest, a fair amount of Fertner rest. And like I said yesterday, four to six hours. Now, sometimes meditators certainly try to or want to prove themselves how much should or how brave Fatna they are and certainly so you know, they push through excruciating levels of Fatna pain. And certainly should a pain become excruciating, do feel free to change Shatna the posture slowly and Satna mindfully. And then uh, there's another you know, area you know, where you know, oftentimes there's a lot of you know, wrong understanding, namely you know, meditators, some meditators may you know, think they need to sit in meditation and the sitting should be or the mind should be entirely free of thoughts. And is this likely to happen or not? <laughs> it is not very likely to happen unless you've done a lot of samatha meditation. And so, so what we're practicing here is certain vipassana meditation. And so, so rather than forcefully trying to keep or shut out all you know, thoughts, take a thought when it arises as an, you know, an object of observation and then label it, observe it, and try to know its certain nature. Now, now, some of you may still be relatively new to the meditation practice. You might not find it too easy to, for, to sit for a full hour. Be patient with yourself. And certainly if you cannot sit for 60 minutes and you need to change your posture, then just go ahead and do so. And certainly maybe stretch your leg a little bit. And certainly then after a couple of minutes, continue with the sit. No, there are still you know, other things certainly that are not certainly helpful, namely we've all grown up in a rather you know, competitive fitness society and certainly then you know, we always certainly compete with our uh, you know, with certain people around us, and certainly this may be necessary in, you know, well, in the world of fitness business. But uh, here at the Forest Refuge, you know, during this retreat, it's not necessary. And so we're all in the same boat. And so even if you see another meditator sit for two and a half hours, don't feel you know, that you also need to sit. You know, that you need to compete you know, with this other meditator that you too need to sit for two and a half hours. That's certainly not necessary. 
and said, you know, thus you know, avoid any any anything to you know, put pressure on you know, yourself. Things you know, through things such as competing you know, with others or you know, by having high expectations, like uh, you, know, you need to, no matter what, you know, during this certain you know, retreat, you, know, you need to realize certain you know, the peace of uh, nibbana. So today is day two, and uh, or, uh, only 28 days certain you know, left, and uh, you know, already you're, you know, the pressure on your mind uh, uh, is increasing. By tomorrow, it's going to be more, and day after tomorrow, even more. And so you can imagine what the mind will be like uh, on, uh, let's say, day 25 or 26. And so don't go for this certain uh, thing at all. Try to keep your mind as certain uh, balance as possible. And just do the practice. Be mindful from moment to moment, and that will be quite enough. And sometimes meditators want to exercise uh, complete control over unwanted states of mind. And so this is not realistic. And simply just observe them as they are happening. And then sometimes when a difficult mental state arises like fear or worry or anxiety, etc., some meditators like to push the limit and see, oh, there's this much fear. Let's see what happens if I go more into it. And they're basically, they want more and more, want to experience more and more fear. And if you're not careful, the fear might get the better hand or might get an upper hand over you. And you might regret. And so should you be experiencing any extreme levels of fear, depression, anxiety, elation, hyperactivity, etc., kindly inform your teacher without certain delay. And certain one last certain point. So when you practice, try to avoid any form of extreme practice. And Satna then also know that your experiences that you're having during this retreat may be somewhat different from the previous retreats. And Satna that your experiences may differ to some extent from the experiences of others. Now, having said all of these certain things, let me come to a conclusion and um, may you remember as much as possible these instructions. May you take them to heart. May you apply them to your meditation practice over and over again. And Satna, may you know, these instructions help you, know, you to deepen your you know, meditation practice. And Satna, eventually, you know, may you know, they contribute you know, to you know, the arising of you know, well, you know, more and more you know, virtue, of more and more concentration, more and more intuitive wisdom, and ultimately may lead to the arising of the peace of Nibbana. And this is it for now.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.